Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. There's no cheer. We're getting back to the book of Acts. Woohoo, right? See, it just doesn't mean as much if I have to ask for it. You know, you, eventually you guys will learn that, I think. I don't know. Seems like I've been gone for a while. It's good to be back, and um, I'm really excited uh, to jump back into the book of Acts, and particularly with this lesson this morning. I've uh, suggested to you that one way to describe the life and witness and mission of the church is bringing the kingdom of God to the world. We've been talking about what that's like, or really how it is that we show and share and bring the God's kingdom to others. You see on the slide what we've covered so far. As my students would say, uh, these are the bumper stickers. And look, we're already through Acts 4, so we're making progress. When we bring the kingdom of God to a world that's desperate for it, we do it in confidence, great joy in action, because God is with us. Amen? And we do it unashamed of the absolute truth claims of Scripture, but we stand amazed and startled and humbled that the absolute truth of Scripture nevertheless is intensely personally relevant, as personal as it gets with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we looked at how healing, sometimes supernatural healing, is involved in bringing the kingdom of God to a world desperate for it. And then um, finally, we looked at in Acts chapter 4 that the kingdom of God is about second chances. And it's about proclaiming the word boldly, but with a humility that it's not about us, but it's about the one whom we boldly proclaim. Um, This morning, we're going to Turn to the next chapter in Acts, Acts chapter 5, and talk about the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And from that story, we're going to add something I'm calling transparency to our kingdom of God list. And I'll tell you, in studying and preparing for this sermon on transparency in particular, I'm not sure why, but for some reason, God has placed on my heart to A more than usual urgency for this message. Maybe it's because I've been away and I've had more time to think about it. I don't know. But that was God's plan and timing too. In reflecting on Ananias and Sapphira and this issue of transparency, I I ran into so much that I deeply believe God would like to share with us. I've had a growing sense of the last couple of weeks that this issue is so foundational and it's so needed today in the life and witness of the church. And so I'm going to ask you for two Sundays to get it all off my chest. Um, I trust that's all right with you. You don't have much of a choice, but you cannot come, I suppose, but... <laughs> We'll start on the passage today, and then we'll continue our study next week. And, you know, yes, I'll admit it, if that helps you to decide to come again next week, well, so much the better. Amen? Um, Well, seriously, I, I can't fully explain it, but I'm especially eager to share this passage with you. And I'm especially eager to hear your reaction and 
and to discuss it with you and to hear you discuss it in your Sunday school classes and, you know, long past any sermon. Um, so come, let's go and see what God has for store, um, in store for us through His Word. Your Bibles are open to Acts chapter 5. Before we dive in, um, back up a bit and just take a look at the end of Acts chapter 4 and we'll see a little context. Luke, uh, the author of Acts, gives us a second sharing summary uh, at the end of Acts chapter 4. You recall back in Acts chapter 2, in fact, it made our list of um, sharing um, that uh, Luke told us about how the people in the community were sharing with one another. And here again, he tells us that they're sharing, even selling their land and houses. Can you imagine? And then bringing the money from those sales to the apostles for the good of the community. And then after this second sharing summary from Luke, he gives us a good example and then a bad example of sharing within community. The good example is a man named Joseph, more commonly known as Barnabas. And we pick up his story and this story in Acts 4, chapter 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. That's it for the good example of Barnabas. Here now, beginning in chapter 5, comes the bad example of Ananias and Sapphira. Up to this point in Acts, for the first four chapters, the early church has been shown only in a positive light, hasn't it? I mean, so far in Acts, the fellowship of believers have been firmly holding together in love and obedience and witness, even withstanding that outside pressure from the Sanhedrin. But here in Acts 5, however, we have the first recorded, at least, pressure or test from inside the church. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. The Greek uh, for kept back is nasphizo. Say nasphizo. You can all go home and you spoke Greek in church today, right? That word nasphizo is a very rare word in the Bible. It only uh, appears one other time in the New Testament. And in all of the Old Testament, uh, the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, it also only appears once. A rare word. And the English captures it nicely by translating nasphizo as kept back. But uh, there's an edge to nasphizo. Um, another word that perhaps captures that edge is he stole it, he pilfered it, he embezzled it. It's not simply that he kept back, if we're faithful to that word nasphizo, he kept back uh, something he shouldn't have or something that didn't belong to him. So he nasphizoed part of the money for himself but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? 
Here we need to note something very important. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira is not because they failed to give all the money from the sale. More pointedly, their sin is they lied about their gift. Not only to the people around them, but also to God. Their, their sin is trying to lead everyone in their church to believe that they were giving all the proceeds from the sale when they full well knew that they were keeping part of it back. So, in other words, they faked it. We get this pointedly from verse 4. See what it says. Peter continuing to talk to Ananias. Didn't it, the land, belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? So you could do with it what you wanted. What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. And then verse 5. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. No kidding. And then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price? Perhaps Peter pointing to the pile of money that Ananias had laid at the apostles' feet. Tell me, Sapphira, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband, the first she's heard that he's dead, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down his feet, at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. These are the very words of God. Amen? Amen. Well, what um, a nice, delightful feel-good, seeker-sensitive story God has for us this morning, yes? A couple lies about a gift of money to the church, and because of that, they die? Excuse me? Who let that story in here? Did we read that correctly? I mean, I thought the church was all about second chances. I thought it was all about forgiveness and grace. I stood up here not too long ago, in fact, this morning, and said what we need to be about is second chances in our witness of the kingdom of God. And what's with Peter? You remember Peter? I mean, he's the one, isn't he, who arguably received the greatest second chance of all time. After swearing, he didn't even know who Jesus was. And now, not many weeks or a few months after, here's Peter taking a terribly hard line. Where's the grace, Pete? Have you forgotten the forgiveness and second chance you received? God says to forgive others as Christ forgave us. But there's Peter. 
Hello, Ananias. You lied to God. How could you? Boom. Dead. Oh, Sapphira. You lied too. Boom. Dead. And then the story of Acts moves on to how the apostles healed lots and lots of people. Isn't that nice? What's up with that? I mean, does anyone else this morning feel at least a little uncomfortable with what happened here? I do. Doesn't it seem a bit harsh? For this very reason, many preachers and those who make up lectionaries or schedules of Scripture to preach, they simply ignore this passage altogether. Or if they do preach it, they go down the smokescreen path of, well, this passage is a creation of the early church and is thus not relevant to me. Or on the other end of that theological spectrum is a group of radical literalists who hammer home a you-better-give-or-else lesson from this text in order to fill the coffers or scare additional dollars into the church. I mean, can you picture it? West Bowles is very pleased and excited to announce our new Ananias and Sapphira stewardship campaign. And the slogan we've adopted for our new campaign is, You lie, you die. <laughs> Would the ushers please come forward and help receive the offer? Yeah. Well, I'm not going to go down any of those roads this morning. I, in my opinion, they all completely miss the mark in discerning what God is revealing to us. But I will tell you up front... I'm not going to try and erase or completely erase the sting of this passage. Make no mistake, we have a very difficult passage before us this morning. It's, it's a difficult message for our ears in particular, I think, to hear. And I suspect Luke appreciated how shocking this story would appear in his context so far of an all-is-going-well church. Twice in a short period of time, Luke highlights in the story that great fear seized the community over what happens here. He wants us to know that great fear seized the community. The story shook the early church community too. Of course it would. And so I think Luke means for this story to make us uncomfortable. It's supposed to startle us. It's supposed to serve as a warning, a, a warning against something so insidious, so dangerous, so cancerous, so lethal. And so God in his infinite wisdom and love wants to make sure we sit up and take notice, ultimately for our own good and for the good of the church and its witness to the kingdom of God. What I'm suggesting is that for God to so harshly judge Ananias and Sapphira, for Peter to act in such a curiously cold way, given his own experience with grace and second chances, something big must be at stake. And what is that? What is here in the story that's so big, so important for us to hear, that God and Peter turn to seemingly drastic measures what's God so desperately trying to tell us 
The one word answer I've chosen to unpack for you is transparency. God's pleading with us in this story to be transparent. Luke is showing us that transparency is a big deal to God. Now, what do I mean by transparency? What does it mean for a Christian to be transparent? Most of you are familiar with the word, I'm sure. If something's transparent, it means what? We can see through it. Good. And so, for a Christian to be transparent means that people can see through Christians to Jesus. One way you can focus on life and mission is we need to allow Jesus to shine in and through us. This uh, Christmas break, my wife gave me a, a book I can't put down. It's by author Brennan Manning, and it's called The Importance of Being Foolish, How to Think Like Jesus. Isn't that a great title? And Manning, in his book, defines transparency this way. He writes, Transparency is to have the mind of Christ, to think His thoughts, share His ideals, Dream His dreams. Throb with His desires. Replace our natural responses to persons and situations with the concern of Jesus. And make the mindset of Christ so completely our own that the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Galatians 2 verse 20. And then Manning asks a series of haunting questions. If, he writes, allowing Jesus Christ to become transparent in and through us is what it means to live as a Christian, why are the personalities of so many pious, proper, and correct Christians so opaque? Why doesn't the peace of Christ Jesus reign in our hearts? Why don't gentleness, compassion, and trust shine from our eyes? Why don't our contagious joy, enthusiasm, and gratitude infect others with a love for Christ Jesus? Why doesn't the radiant loveliness of the Lord stream from our personalities? Why aren't we windows to God at work? Why aren't we transparent? And in short, Manning concludes... We struggle with transparency. We struggle with allowing Jesus Christ to become transparent in and through us because our eyes are not fixed on Jesus. They're fixed on ourselves. A friend and I team teach a marriage and family Bible class for seniors at Front Range Christian. And she came up with the wonderful idea of beginning each year by giving the kids a big blank sheet of paper. If I had time, I would have had it passed out and had you do it this morning, but maybe next time. We pass out a big blank sheet of paper, and then we ask the students to create a list or to draw pictures of what their lives will look like in 15 years. And, you know, their eyes get big and... Of course, first they have to say things like, oh, wow, 15 years, then we'll be really old like you. you know. So I have to... And the kids have a riot filling out this page. You, you should see it. And after 20, 25 minutes, when they're finished, we go around the room and ask them to share what's on their page. 
And it's a ton of fun, and we laugh about it, and there's chatter and discussion, and it's fun. Far and away, the most common items, semester after semester, that appear on these lists, that these students either list or draw, are things like a house in the mountains, two dogs, one girl this year wanted it to be two wiener dogs. She was very specific. Cool cars. Lots of money. A good job. And then this one's always on there. A hot husband or wife. And only after that, good marriage appears on the list. Two healthy kids with a third one on the way. One of them this year said, a young man said, a good reputation, which I thought was a thoughtful uh, answer at least. And then after everyone's finished, we ask the students the following question. Say, hey guys, great job with the lists. You've got some amazing things listed there. We've got one question we'd like your help in answering. I'm not sure what the answer is. Maybe you guys can help us. Why is it, do you suppose, we ask, that the most popular items on your lists don't mention God? And there's silence. And I've got to tell you, these are great kids. Kids who are passionate about God and want to know Him more and more and who try all the time to love others as themselves. And after a while, a hand will come up and a student will say something like, well, you didn't ask us to do that. Of course, Mr. Lanning, we want God there and involved with all of those things, of course, but you didn't ask us to list or to talk about that. Our kids hear a question like, what will your life be like in 15 years? And they don't think we're asking about God. Does that bother anybody? They don't immediately associate a question about What's life like with God? That's something entirely different. And my heart breaks just a bit every time because it's not something different. And I don't blame the kids. They're only giving back and responding to the lessons they've learned from us. Our culture, our churches, our families. And so I don't blame them. I blame me. I blame us, all of us. We're not getting the message across. Why not? Probably because we haven't got the message ourselves and we're not living out ourselves that everything we strive for, everything we achieve, everything we gain, everything that we're about is ultimately about God. Amen? And when we fail to live that, when we are not transparent... Our kids notice, and they pick up the cue from us that avoiding transparency is the way to go. And it breaks my heart. 
according to Manning, the three most basic human desires are security, pleasure, and power. When I read that, I worked hard to see if I could find something else, and I had a hard time, so I think he, got a, he has a good list. Our desire for these things, he says, constantly seeks to consume us and control us. We put so much of our energy and attention into achieving those things, don't we? Things like enough money, um, enough good feelings, things like prestige. Often our preoccupation in getting these things acts as a cloak that covers our transparency, that covers our window into Jesus. I love that picture of a cloak. Manning makes this observation. He says the endless struggle for money, good feelings, and prestige yields a rich harvest of worry, frustration, suspicion, anger, jealousy, anxiety, fear, and resentment. It's quite a list. These powerful emotion-backed desires, he writes, cause 99% of the self-inflicted and unnecessary suffering in our lives. They continually, security, pleasure, and power, they continually focus our intention on self and keep us from being transparent, dimming the light and obscuring the glory of God in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Trapped in the quest for security, pleasure, and power, Our moment-to-moment thoughts are are concentrated on the dark pursuit of illusory happiness. And we're thus inattentive to the Lord of light seeking to shine through us. And I confess to you, my uh, brothers and sisters, this has hit me between the eyes these last couple of weeks. Manning is dead on, isn't he? I don't know about you, but it pegs me. It nails me right to the wall. I I constantly struggle against letting my own needs, my own desires take over and define who I am and how I live and what I do in life. I'm in the game for me so often. And if my focus on myself and what I want for me is so intense, so relentless, then how can I possibly be transparent? How can I possibly be a window to Jesus, the one whose focus was relentlessly on everyone but himself? The answer is, I can't, if the focus is me. I'm reminded of an old joke comparing dogs and cats. Have you heard it? Do you know the difference between a dog and a cat? You feed love and care for a dog, and the dog responds by saying to you, Wow, look at all of this you're giving me and doing for me. You must be God. Do the same things for a cat, and the cat responds, Wow. Look at all of this you are giving me and doing for me. I must be God. I'm reminded of that joke every time our cat Daisy struts into the room. 
My nickname for her is Her Highness. She'll come, oh, well, thank you for joining us, you know, Your Highness, for five minutes before you go run off into the basement or something. When we get so preoccupied with self, when God's, even God's gifts to us cause us to admire us or to think that, well, yeah, I kind of deserve that, rather than admire Him, when we start to be impressed with ourselves, rather than with God, when we begin to believe our own press, when we start living by our expectations on people, rather than how Jesus would expect, However subtly or unconsciously, we begin to think, I think, something like, hey, look at all I have and all I can do. I must be God. And let me tell you, us thinking we're God is a big deal to God. What does all of this have to do with Ananias and Sapphira? I know many of you are already connecting the dots. Let me answer it this way. What do you suppose was going on in the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira before they ended up in front of Peter? Maybe it went something like this. They're sitting in church. And Sapphira bumps her husband. Look, Ananias, over there. No, don't turn. There's Joseph, the Levite from Cyprus. Did you hear what he did? He sold a piece of property and gave all the money from the sale to the church. And everywhere I go, everybody's talking about it. Oh, look at Joseph. Joseph is wonderful. Joseph is amazing. Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. And maybe Ananias whispers back, I know. I'm so sick and tired of hearing about wonderful Joseph the Levite. Did you hear what the apostles themselves did? The apostles. They gave him a nickname. They call him Barnabas, son of encouragement. Well, what he does. Everybody loves that Joseph. Wish everybody loved me like that. Jerk. And perhaps out of that jealousy, out of a desire to be recognized and respected, out of a desire to be right, in order to gain prestige, Ananias and Sapphira make their plan. Hey, I know. Let's sell our land. We'll pocket a good chunk of change for ourselves that no one knows we're living off of. And we'll give the rest to the church. Only, and here's the good part, we'll make it seem like We gave the church the whole thing. What do you think? Nobody will know. It'll blow them all away. They'll think we're awesome. And they may even give us a cool nickname too. It's brilliant. Ananias and Sapphira refused to be transparent, didn't they? They decided to lie because then they could point to themselves rather than to God. There are many stories in the Bible that Luke may have in mind as he tells the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We'll look at um, three or four of them in the time that we have left, and then we'll take a break. 
until next week. I think it's helpful to notice that this theme of transparency appears so often in God's revelation to us in His Word. The fact that that same theme repeats itself so often in Scripture emphasizes, I think, how important transparency is to God. Transparency is a big deal to God. First story I want to look at is the story of Achan. Remember old Achan? No, not my Achan back. Achan. How many remember Achan? Not many. Okay, he's an Old Testament guy in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 7. Remember now? The Israelites are commanded to give certain plunder from Jericho to God. Not supposed to keep any. Achan, however, kept some of it for himself. And he digs a hole and he hides it under his tent. Not exactly the most transparent act in the world, you think? He's not being transparent here. God even characterizes in the book of Joshua Achan's sin as a lie. Interesting similarity to our story, isn't it? And here's one that really suggests to me Luke has Achan at least in mind as he tells us the Ananias and Sapphira story. Remember that rare Greek word, nasphizo? Guess where the only place in the Old Testament it also appears? In the Achan story. Achan nasphizos the stuff from Jericho as well. Achan and his family are stoned, killed. <laughs> See, my high school students catch me on that one immediately, but I'm getting better. They're killed and their bodies are burned. Um, I'm sorry to make a joke there, really, because transparency is a big deal to God, and it is no joke. The next story I think Luke has in mind is the story of Judas. We all know how that ends. There's a parallel between Ananias and Sapphira and the story of Judas. In both stories, for example, Satan is mentioned as being behind the sin, pushing. Both sins bear some relationship, at least, to money. You remember that Judas is the treasurer for Jesus and the apostles, and, and Judas is the one that voices his displeasure over the waste of an extravagant, extravagant gift given to Jesus. He loves money. He's also paid handsomely for his betrayal of Jesus. And then there's a piece of property that plays a role uh, as the site of his death. Judas lacks transparency. He hides his plan to hand Jesus over, pretending to be someone he's not. He even betrays Jesus with a kiss, a sign of friendship and respect. We also know that Luke has Judas in mind as he writes the book of Acts. How do we know that? I didn't preach on it, but you page back to Acts chapter 1. Peter has quite a few verses. He talks about Judas and Judas's sin in the context of replacing him uh, with a different disciple. So Judas is on Luke's mind. Ultimately, it may be that Judas was after power in addition to the 30 pieces of silver he got from the chief priests. That just happens to be my opinion. But 
in my opinion, it's possible that Judas, this zealot who hated Rome, turned Jesus in, hoping and believing that it would force Jesus to fight, force him to use force and defeat Rome and the authorities once and for all. And so perhaps how Judas goes from traitor to wanting to hang himself is when he sees that Jesus is not going to fight. The enormity of what he has just done crushes him to the point where he can no longer live. Maybe Judas was after power too over Rome. Perhaps Luke is suggesting in the story of Ananias and Sapphira that Christians need to react to the sin of Ananias and Sapphira the same way we react to Judas betraying Jesus. Like Judas, Ananias and Sapphira have no respect for God's plan or God's way and and they try to deceive God to serve their own needs of me, security, pleasure and power. All of them lacked transparency, and transparency is a big deal to God. Last story I want to look at with you is Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Remember? There's a parallel there, too, I think. Both the Holy Spirit and Satan play pivotal roles in that story, just like the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Both stories occur near the beginning of a new age or a new ministry. And for this morning's purpose, especially, both stories challenge transparency, don't they? Both stories focus on whether or not the people involved will be transparent in their witness of Jesus and God's will, or will they choose instead to give in to the temptations of security, pleasure, or power. And you look at what Jesus was tempted with. It runs right through Manning's thesis of security, pleasure, or power. Now, the difference in the stories is that Satan fills the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira, but Jesus goes into the wilderness, we're told, full of the Holy Spirit. But in each instance, and here's the similarity between the stories, the devil's ultimately defeated. Jesus defeats Satan when he refuses to go along with his devilish plans. And the early church defeats Satan when Peter protects it from that dangerously divisive sin of Ananias and Sapphira. We'll talk about the divisive effect of such sin, of not being transparent next week. I think that parallel in particular with Jesus' temptation helps It helps me deal with the harshness uh, of what happens to Ananias and Sapphira. The church's victory here in Acts 5 is not so much a victory over Ananias and Sapphira as it is over Satan. And the very harshness of the story, I think, helps make that point. Transparency is a big deal to God. There are many other possible parallels, far too many to cover this morning. Another big one is Genesis 3 and that very first sin of Adam and Eve where they ate the forbidden fruit. Why? Anybody remember? Because they wanted to gain wisdom. Pick your choice. Security, 
pleasure, power? Where does wisdom fit? Maybe with all three. And then they hid from God in the bushes. Not the most transparent thing to do. To cover up their shame. Transparency is a big deal to God. Okay, we'll pause here. But um, here's a preview of next week's coming attraction. (laughs) This morning I've tried to define transparency for us and to demonstrate that it's a really big deal to God. Next week, we'll focus more on why that is. Why is transparency such a big deal? Among the things we'll discuss is how our transparency has a huge effect on all of our relationships, how it has a huge effect on our witness to others, and how it may, in fear and trembling, impact our very salvation. So I hope to see you all next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you asking you to give us what we need to be transparent. Father, we so often get in the way. And we know, Father, that you understand. We know that you know how difficult it is, how tempting it is to do things for me. And we ask, Father, that you would help us in that battle against focusing on self. Help us, Father, to focus on you And to focus on loving others so that people can see right through us to you and to the amazing grace of salvation in Jesus. And, oh, Father, may it be said of us, did you meet that young man or that older woman the other day? There was something about them. It felt like... It felt like Jesus. Oh, Father, would we be that transparent as we interact with and as we seek desperately to bring the kingdom of God to your world. Father, I ask for safe travels on slippery roads. Father, I ask that um, you reveal yourself to everyone here in a new, amazing, and powerful way sometime this week. And you give all of us, you give all of us the ability to see you with us. We ask all of this in the precious, precious name of Jesus, your Son, our Messiah and Savior. Amen. You are dismissed. Drive safely. I hope to see you all next week. Have a great week.